Good evening. This evening we have two readings from 1 Peter, starting on page 1014 of the Church Bibles. The first is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 to 9, and the second reading is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 to 12, starting on page 1014. First Peter, chapter one, verses one to nine. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 to 12. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Thank you very much, Morag and Roger, for uh, leading. Now, turn up in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 4. You'll find that on page 740. Uh, we'll read that a little bit later on. Just one or two preliminaries before we begin. It's really important that David uh, prayed tonight uh, for our government. A book of, like Daniel, questions uh, authorities and questions powers. And the Bible is balanced in how it speaks of government, and we need to be balanced in how we think and act with respect to government. Thank you for the many emails and encouragements after Daniel chapter 3. I have expanded on the sermon in light of really helpful feedback. That'll go back up online on Wednesday of this week. It's much uh, fuller and just takes uh, and explains and looks into the issues of idolatry in our culture 
in a full and, uh, I hope, a helpful way. And many of you have uh, asked for the opportunity, and we'll do this in time, just to sit down and talk together and pray through uh, some of these issues that we might support and encourage each other uh, in articulating the voice of the gospel in our culture. But let's pray for tonight. Our Father, we thank you for this marvelous and powerful book. We pray that the Word of God will be the persuasive voice tonight. We pray that we will neither add to it nor subtract from it, but listen to the Word of God as it is. Meditate on it, reflect on it, and obey it, for we ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Now, the big message of the book of Daniel is that God rules. He is sovereign over all. There are multiple facets of God's rule that are expressed in the book. For example, chapter 1, God rules over history and through history. Chapter 2, God reveals, speaks, tells us the course of history. Chapter 3, God's rule is seen in His deliverance or rescue of His people. And now we come to chapters 4 and 5, two weeks God rules over the most powerful rulers in the world. That's uh, what chapters 4 and 5 are about. God rules over the most powerful rulers in the world. Now, God's rule is a vital message for the people of God to take to heart. I think it would be very easy for us to say in hard times. I'm not sure we are living in hard times I think it might be more accurate to say that we are living in normal times, normal times in the Bible. Think of the church in the New Testament. It was always weak, always fragile, always up against the prevailing culture. Morag read to us from 1 Peter, you are a chosen race. You are elect of God, that you may proclaim the excellencies of of God. You are elect of God, Christian people, that you may proclaim Christ, who is the supremacy of the excellencies of God. And you do so as exiles in the world. Who are we? We are God's chosen people living as exiles in the world, called to proclaim to speak of Jesus and to live distinctively. What does living distinctively mean? It means from the book of Daniel and 1 Peter, indeed the Bible, it means not to withdraw, not to compromise, and therefore to live distinctively. Neither to withdraw nor to compromise is to be distinctive with wisdom and grace and courage and winsomeness and discernment, sometimes quietly sometimes courageously. Our trust to live distinctively is in God, who is our judge, Daniel. God is my judge. Now, the big point, as I said, of chapters 4 and 5, God rules over the most powerful rulers in the world. Chapter 4 is about Nebuchadnezzar, Chapter 5 is about Belteshazzar, the last ruler of Babylon. 
Now, you may have noticed as we have read through the book of Daniel that the events described are precisely dated. Many of them precisely dated. Why? So that we know it is an historical record. Second, because it's important that we see these big, big events like chapter 3 last week, the whole issue of the statue and the furnace, what we're going to look at tonight, Nebuchadnezzar's conversion, or Daniel told he cannot pray to his God in chapter 6 in the lion's den, these events take place over 70 years. And the point of that is that the book of Daniel challenges us to be prepared, to be willing to stand up for God. There's a chorus that I certainly remember as a child singing about the book of Daniel, Dare to be a Daniel. But this is not a book, and the Bible is not a book that stirs us up into some kind of emotional frenzy to take on the culture and the world. It commends steady, faithful, consistent witness over a long period of time, living distinctively, quietly, graciously, at school, at university, at work, in retirement, in our lives. Let me practically put it in a different way. It means coming to church. It means coming to a small group. It means reading our Bibles. It means quietly sitting at the feet of Jesus week after week, month after month, year after year, so that when the big events come, even if it is one in our lifetime or one every 20 years, as a church, as individuals, when God calls us to be courageous, we will not bow down. We will not bow down not because we are stirred up. We will not bow down because we will find ourselves doing what we have done for years and years and years, faithfulness to God. Now, the third reason that chapters are precisely dated is that the writer of the book wants us to see certain chapters together. So chapter 3 and chapter 4, the events described in chapter 3 uh, the statue that people are told to bow down to, and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah don't, and they are thrown into the furnace, and God rescues them. Uh, the date of that event, and it would have happened just over, I guess, a day, 580 BC. Uh, now, the events in chapter 4, probably immediately after that, over a few years, maybe 580 to 570 BC, so following on from chapter 3. So chapter 4 follows on from chapter 3 in our Bibles, and chapter 4 describes events that follow on from chapters 3 events in history. Chapter 3 is a frightening chapter. Flagrant idolatry, that golden image set up. Idolatry with power. Nebuchadnezzar commands all peoples, nations, and languages to bow down. And tyranny, bow down or die. It is frightening. It is totalitarianism shorn of any tolerance. And God's people are targeted because they will not bow down and worship. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are maliciously accused. King Nebuchadnezzar is incandescent in his anger. Now, please don't 
have in your minds. Yet, Nebuchadnezzar, as anything other than someone who was one of the most ruthless leaders opposed to God's people in history, he is incandescent with anger at Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, such that he ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. Now, consider Nebuchadnezzar. We need to have him in our minds as we come to the story of chapter 4. He was, without doubt, one of the most powerful leaders in world history. He gets a whole section of the British Museum to himself. He is one of the most powerful leaders in world history, conquering all before him, his empire dominating the ancient world. He made the city of Babylon the most magnificent city in the ancient world. Go home and watch one of the many YouTube videos on the city of Babylon. The city walls so wide you could ride a chariot along the ramparts. The gates, magnificent. The city built on a grid design like New York City, ordered and symmetrical, irrigated by waterways sourced from the Euphrates. The city would sparkle as the sun reflected the bright blue azure facing on the bricks that built it. Bricks that had release of lions, bulls, and dragons, beautiful palaces, the famed hanging gardens. In the middle of the city, the great ziggurat, a temple to the gods of Babylon, magnificent Babylon. And so it was, symbolizing great learning, art, and culture, unstoppable military power. Think of the most magnificent cities on the planet today, and Babylon is right up there. In fact, right at the top in the ancient world. And the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, this most powerful of world leaders, took on God. Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem and besieged it. He is the aggressor. He was systematic in his strategy against God and his people. He took the best of the next generation to Babylon to assimilate them, to indoctrinate them in Babylonian culture, among them Daniel and his friends. At the end of their training, you remember from chapter 1, he found Daniel and his friends way ahead, better than anyone else in their learning, ten times better. It, I don't think, I don't know, but I, I would be very surprised if it ever crossed Nebuchadnezzar's mind that was because God gave them such understanding. A few years later, the events recorded in chapter 2, God, through his servant Daniel, revealed to Nebuchadnezzar his dream and what it meant. God revealed to Nebuchadnezzar. God, just clock this, revealed to the king who so aggressively opposed God and his people, God revealed the future to him. His kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar's, powerful as it is, would be replaced. A succession of kingdoms would follow until God would establish his universal and everlasting kingdom under the rule of his all-powerful king. And reflecting in the early years of his reign, 
on what had been revealed to him in that dream recorded in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges this much to Daniel. Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. But it didn't change his heart a bit. Not a bit. How do we know? Because almost immediately, another wave of exiles is taken into Babylon in 597 BC, including the prophet Ezekiel. Where did he put them? In a refugee camp, effectively, on the shores of the Kibar Canal. And in 586 BC, just a few years after God revealed to Nebuchadnezzar that his kingdom would go and God would build an everlasting kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar burned the city of Jerusalem and the temple to the ground. Nebuchadnezzar is invincible. Everybody looking would conclude that Nebuchadnezzar is invincible. Everybody living in that culture would feel the invincibility. Just think of it. As you watched your city raised to the ground in flames and the temple destroyed, it would not look like or feel like God reigns. Such is his arrogance and defiance. Such is his arrogance and defiance that he sets up events recorded in chapter 3 in his arrogance and defiance of God, the golden image that resembles the dream of the statue in chapter 2, except that the whole statue he sets up is of gold, not just the head. Nebuchadnezzar proudly claiming with his own Tower of Babel, erected that all peoples, nations, of every language will bow down. He believes that his Babylonian kingdom is the universal and everlasting dominion and that he is the king of this empire. Faced with the defiant stance of God's people who refuse to bow down and worship the image, Nebuchadnezzar determines to burn them alive. He throws them into the furnace. And yet again, God reveals his power to Nebuchadnezzar. He sees Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah unharmed and unbound. And he sees another man, one like a son of the gods, I think from elsewhere in Daniel chapter 7 and the New Testament. The person he sees in the fire is the king who is king over him. He sees Jesus. The king who thinks his kingdom and rule is universal and eternal sees Jesus, the one whose kingdom is universal and eternal. Nebuchadnezzar's response at the end of chapter 3, he makes a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. 
Does that sound like a man humbled before God? It doesn't. It sounds like a king who pays lip service to the sovereignty of God other than over himself and his kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar is a bad, an evil, and a wicked man. Is that unfair? Well, we come to chapter 4. The events described in chapter 4 follow on from chapter 3, perhaps a few years later. The point, the events of chapter 3 and all that came before it are still fresh in Nebuchadnezzar's mind, still fresh in our minds. Now, the structure of chapter 4, the opening and closing sections, verses 1 to 18 and 34 to 37, are Nebuchadnezzar's own voice. He is speaking. It is testimony, his words. In between, in between his words is a description of Daniel's interpretation of his dream, verses 19 to 27, and the fulfillment of what is predicted in the dream. Now, let's read it and feel it in light of all that we know of this man. I, Nebuchadnezzar, this is verse 4, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. That does not sound like anything has changed. I saw a dream, verse 5, that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. Another dream. Another series of sleepless nights. We've been here before 25 years ago. The events recorded in chapter 2. Verse 6. So I made a decree, Nebuchadnezzar says, that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. The last time they couldn't help him, and had he forgotten? Verse 7, then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. Remember who these people are. They are the people who maliciously accused, perhaps even a few months earlier, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and had them thrown into a furnace. He asked these people, who were responsible for throwing God's people into the furnace that he saw into and saw Jesus, he asked them to tell him his dream. This man is as far away as ever from God. But they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, almost as an afterthought, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the musicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation." The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade in it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it." Reading on at verse 13, I saw in the vision of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. This is Nebuchadnezzar's own recollection. 
he proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw. And you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Now, we know from chapter 2, his first dream, that only God can reveal, only God can reveal the truth, only God can reveal the course of human history. And reading then from verse 19, then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, frightened, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. In other words, there is no way on earth that any of the other wise men of Babylon would have dared to say the truth. Why is Daniel frightened? Because of what he is about to say. Remember who Daniel is. He's one of the exiles. One of the wise men of Babylon. And he is about to tell one of the most powerful rulers who has ever lived that God is going to humble him, literally bring him to his knees. And Daniel is afraid. Afraid to speak the truth in a hostile way culture. Nebuchadnezzar presses Daniel to tell him the truth. Daniel, though, had no idea how he would react. Well, except he did from what had happened before. wonder if the furnace flashed across Daniel's mind. The tree you saw, verse 20, which grew and became strong. It's striking in these chapters, we don't get to the interpretations of anything till nearly end. The chapters set it up for us. The tree which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven and was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and, in, and you're desperate to know who it is is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. 
Your greatness has grown and reached to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And I bet when he was saying this to this mighty king, the furnace, the fire, the threats would flash over his mind. You shall be made the mightiest king on earth, to eat grass like an ox. And you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the root of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you shall know heaven rules. Gosh, imagine having to say that. Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar that God will humble him until he knows that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he chooses. And what a humiliation it will be. This mighty ruler will become like an animal until he comes to terms with the fact that the God of heaven rules the kingdoms of this world. Now, Nebuchadnezzar had been shown this again and again. Right at the beginning, the earlier dream, seeing Jesus, the son of the gods in the furnace, seeing Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah walking out unharmed. And now he is confronted with the truth again, and the next verse is critical, verse 27. What's all this for? Why is God revealing these things to Nebuchadnezzar? Why is God speaking to him? Why is he interested in him? Now set aside for a moment who Nebuchadnezzar is and what we learn from his life, his engagement with Daniel and more especially God's dealings with him. Put all that to one side and consider Nebuchadnezzar as he is, like every leader who has ever lived, a man, a human being who can't sleep, who's disturbed in his mind, mortal flesh and blood, why is God doing all this? God's purpose in it all is to bring this man to saving faith. How do we know? Well, we know because confronted with the truth about himself and about God, Daniel, God's messenger, calls Nebuchadnezzar to repent. What did Jesus 
say when he began his public ministry, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. What does Daniel say to Nebuchadnezzar? You, O king, are subject to the eternal kingdom of God. Repent and believe. Therefore, O king, let my counsel, verse 27, be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of the prosperity. You know, without verse 27 in this text, it would be a whole different thing. It would be a power game. It's to convert him. And Daniel says that you might also show mercy. I'm sure Daniel was praying that God would show him mercy at this moment. Nebuchadnezzar would show him mercy. Now, how did Nebuchadnezzar respond? We are not told how he reacted at the time. The narrative takes us forward 12 months, verse 28. This is how he responded to all of this. At that time, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. Picture him on the top of the ziggurat or in the hanging gardens of Babylon, looking at the beautiful architecture, the, the, the wealth, the power, the wisdom, the might, the culture. And he said, in light of all that had been revealed to him, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power, as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. Why does it say, verse 30, the king answered? Nobody had asked him a question. I think what we're meant to conclude in the text is that the king answered the call to repentance by saying, I am the mighty Nebuchadnezzar and I have built all this. Twelve months passed, and he is unchanged. Now, I want us to cut him a little bit of slack. If you were him, and you had built that, we don't build palaces. We just build four-bedroomed houses with gardens. If you were walking at the top of that ziggurat, as Nebuchadnezzar in the ancient world, unless you believed what had been revealed to you by God, if you were led by your eyes, you would not listen. It looks like and feels like he is the king of kings. And then what happened? While the words, verse 31, were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be, and so on and so forth. And everything that was said was fulfilled to the letter. And you can go to uh, the British Museum, and you can read uh, uh, tablets or cylinders, as they were then, that describe this period in Nebuchadnezzar's life when he lost his mind and was like an animal. 
And what happened? Verse 34, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. In Nebuchadnezzar, think of what he did, burning Christians, burning believers alive. He's now singing a psalm. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. At the same time, as he sings praise to the God of heaven, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom. And still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. This great King Nebuchadnezzar, one of the most powerful kings who has ever lived, came to understand that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Next time you're in London, go to the British Museum with your Bible and walk round the floor given over to Nebuchadnezzar. Go to Berlin and see the Ishtar Gate reconstructed. Go to Iraq. Maybe not. And see the city, the archaeology. And remember that that great king came to praise the God of heaven. He became a believer. That's clear, I think. He lifted his eyes to heaven. He praised and extolled the king of heaven. That is believing, saving faith, and his kingdom was restored to him. That is Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. He has come to understand and believe that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. Out of the mouth of this king, who had given so much of his life to destroying God and God's people, there are psalms of praise. Now, what a testimony to God's power. God rules in Babylon. God rules in the world. God rules over the most powerful leaders and rulers, nations, and kingdoms. God saves Nebuchadnezzar. What a powerful illustration that is of grace, undeserved mercy. But next time, chapter 5, he takes Belshazzar's life and his kingdom in one night in judgment. Sometimes God intervenes in world history to save, to judge. Oftentimes, He lets dictators rule, but every single dictator that has walked on the earth has died. And their kingdoms have died. But God's King and His kingdom is forever, and His people will live in God's eternal kingdom. Now, let me conclude and try to apply this in as simple a way as I can. Go back to the beginning of chapter 4. We missed out verses 1 to 3. They're like an executive summary of the whole chapter. 
King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting commitment. It is a message, Nebuchadnezzar's message to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. This section of the book of Daniel, chapters 2 to 7, is not written in Hebrew, the language of the people of God. It's in Aramaic. It is the language of the world. It is the lingua franca of the ancient world, Aramaic. And this mighty king speaks to other kings, other leaders through history in the language of the world and says, there is a kingdom that lasts forever and it's not yours and it's not mine. Who is he speaking to in the world today? Who is like him? Well, is it not a message to Kim Jong-un, supreme leader of North Korea, the hardest country on earth to be a Christian? 400,000 Christians. To be discovered as a Christian is a death sentence. You will be taken to a labor camp as a political criminal, inhumane prisons with horrific conditions, where 70,000 Christians currently languish. Nebuchadnezzar's message is a message to him. It is a message to Nigeria's president, Muhammadu Bari, at a critical juncture in that country not to force Islamization on the country. More Christians are murdered for their faith in Nigeria than any other country. Across many parts of the Islamic world, Nebuchadnezzar's message is to Boko Haram and its leaders and groups affiliated to Islamic State. That's exactly who it's to. It is a message to the President of India, the Hindu nationalist Ram Nath Kovind, to intervene at this critical moment in India's history to stop the widespread persecution of Christians in the country. India is likely to become a massive player on the world stage because it sits between the US, the West, and China. It is a message, Nebuchadnezzar's message, to Xi Jinping, Secretary of the Communist Party and President of the People's Republic of China. The church in China continues to see extraordinary growth. In China, the policy of sinicizing the church, in other words, to assimilate the church in China to the language and literature of the Chinese. Exactly like Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar's message to these great leaders on our planet today, do not take on God. Will they heed the message? Will they listen? Nobody would have ever, ever, ever thought Nebuchadnezzar would listen. But he did. Many won't like Belteshazzar, whose life and death we'll look at next week. He knew Nebuchadnezzar's testimony, but he ignored it. God took his life and took his kingdom. 
The Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. This is a message to all leaders in the world, and that includes leaders in the increasingly secular West. It is written by an extraordinary powerful leader in his language to the leaders of nations of the earth. But the book of Daniel is also a message to the people of God, and primarily so. It is primarily a message to Christians in North Korea, in India, in Nigeria, in China, in the West, in Europe, in the UK, in Scotland. That God rules over history and in history, that it reveals the course of history, that his rule is seen in the deliverance and rescue of his people, and that every leader on the earth has a higher king. Now, this is not hard to understand. It is hard to believe. If you look with your eyes and feel with your fear, but God has revealed this to us through His Word and through His Son, and that Word applied by the Spirit of Jesus works in our minds and hearts over years and years and years to convince us so that when a day like this comes, wherever a Christian is in the world, and God calls us to stand up and speak out, we will. Daniel stood before Nebuchadnezzar and spoke to him on behalf of God. Daniel called Nebuchadnezzar to repent and believe. And so we need to pray that God will put Christian believers into positions like Daniel. And there will be people who do speak at great risk to the likes of Kim Jong-un and Mohamed Ubari and Ram Nath Kovind and Xi Jinping of Jesus and his kingdom. We need to pray for courage for those who speak. And we need to pray with Nebuchadnezzar in our minds for the conversion of these leaders on the earth. 